Okay, hello everybody out there. Today we are going to talk about um, a lot of interesting things. We actually have a special guest um, from the Qualia Research Institute, and uh, his name is Andrew Zuckerman, and um, he did a project about uh, how to measure uh, tracers and uh, like basically kind of the trailing effects that you might see on different uh, like psychedelics or maybe other types of drugs. And um, so we also have a special co-host this time from the uh, Intercollegiate Psychedelics Network. Uh, and uh, so yeah, we're about to uh, start this, I guess. Science, where we discuss crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. I'm a little bit sleep deprived everybody and uh, so I might just generally sound stupider at certain points today Um, but let's get on with this Um, so how about you first let's introduce I guess let's introduce the co-host first Uh, Isla do you think you could introduce yourself a little bit sure Uh, so my name is Isla Weber I'm uh, currently studying neuroscience at Princeton and I'm on a gap year working at a neuroscience lab in Columbia, sort of studying the hippocampus, serotonin, receptors, PTSD, and depression generally. And um, we are interested in also studying psychedelics in that mix, though aren't currently. And I'm also a co-leader of the uh, Intercollegiate Psychedelics Network Research and Professional Development Mushroom. And um, that is the group that sort of hosted and put on the student talk competition called Psychedelics, which Andrew uh, won an award for. So his project for that competition is what we'll be talking about today. Yes, that is actually important. Uh, that So there was this competition that we did. Some of you guys might have seen that stuff. Um, if you haven't, you can actually, if you type in on YouTube, you basically just type like psychedelics, except instead of the end being I-C-S, you type psychedel X, and you'll, it'll pretty much, it should just pop up as like the first thing. And uh, you can see uh, Andrew's project there as well, so I really suggest you check that out, especially because it is a very visual project, and uh, we're going to try to do our best to explain uh, the kind of visual elements of this uh, as best we can in audio form. Um, And uh, so how about Andrew? Could you uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. So my name is Andrew Zuckerman, and I participated in the Psychedelics Student Talk competition earlier this year. 
Right now, I am leading Qualia Research Institute, which is a pretty young research organization that aims to use math to describe the structure of consciousness. And yeah, I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of it, but um, one of the projects at QRI, Qualia Research Institute, that I was working on is a tool, a software tool, to help quantify the tracer effect that many people have on psychedelics and at different doses of psychedelics this effect changes so we'll explore all of that but that's a little bit about me oh and uh i guess before that i studied computer science um and am shifting into consciousness research nice yes so i guess let's start with um I don't know, what what would be your best summary of this tool that you've uh, helped to create? And like, what does it do? Um, what is uh, the goals of it? Um, kind of just like give, give the general rundown of your project, if you can. Sure, so I think we should start with tracers. And I'm sure your audience is really into psychedelic science, but tracer effects are these visual effects. I think you may have cut out right there. Are you still there? Being like some type of movie, and you have each frame of the movie. Wait, Andrew, I think you cut what out. What might for happen a bit. is if an object moves. Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah, now it's okay. It's, it's sort bit. of trying to catch up. Um, it mm, it's still glitching. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, it's very Hello. strange. It's like uh, there's like repeating... it's having tracer. It's a tracer. Yeah, exactly. Effect. It's like it's, it's a tracer. It has <laughs> Oh wow! So for all of you out there, this is exactly what we're going to talk about today. He's demonstrating it. <laughs> we needed help uh, with presenting the tracer effect. <laughs> podcast form and this is what we get <laughs> how's this it good. appears to be good okay well I guess we added the tracer audio effect too early on the podcast we should have left <laughs> oh, for yeah. yeah 10 minutes in um, <laughs> cool so should I just start over about yeah, the topic so. yeah okay so let's go over before we go over the research software we made let's just go over the tracer tool the tracer effect itself. So when people are on psychedelic drugs and many different kinds, they have this effect that happens in their visual field where objects in motion leave after images in their wake. So if you move a hand across your visual field, you know there will be many copies of your hand left behind and they each fade out over time. And this effect, I just described a little simply, um, you know, a lot of people have commented about this effect over the years. Some people have made artistic renditions of what this effect is like. But there's actually a bunch of different properties of this effect that we, you know, ideally want to know more about. And, you know, depending on what drug you take, the effect changes how it manifests. And also, depending on the dose you take, the effect changes how it manifests. Um, so what we did at Quality Research Institute is we made software that exists online, so you can find it at psychophysics.qualityresearchinstitute.org. And the software is looks pretty simple. It's just a ball that's bouncing across the screen. And you can imagine that if you're tripping or on a psychedelic drug and you look at this ball, 
um, you will have the tracer effect. And um, our goal here is for people having this effect to be able to use this tool and then slide parameters across the screen that try to recreate what their tracers are like. And we made this tool, we put it on the internet, and we shared it with a few people. And from the pilot data we collected, there was a bunch of interesting trends about what we saw. So one of those was that different psychoactive drugs have different tracer effects. And one of the main parameters that you might imagine being involved in an effect like this is what frequency after images occur at. So if you're moving your hand across your visual field and you move it and it takes a second to grow across your visual field, how many copies of your hand does, you know, are left behind the tracer. And we find that this, this frequency actually changes depending on the drug you take. Um, from the pilot data we have, it seems like certain drugs like TCB or LSD, they will have tracers that are at a slower frequency than a drug like DMT, where the tracers are really fast and the frequency is really high. There's also different effects here too, depending on drugs. So um, something like DMT, people recreate their tracers with color inversions. So as the tracer exists, you have also, besides leaving copies of the moving object, you also have color changing probably to its negative. So from blue to yellow and blue again. Um, And this is in contrast to a drug like 5-MeO-DMT, where the tracers that people leave and recreate from our data set so far don't have this type of color inversion. So, you know, at a high level, of course, I would love to show you a visualization. This is a very, very visual effect. Um, and we're collecting data about the effect visually today. Um, but actually, the tracer effect exists in other sense modalities, too. So, you know, we were kind of joking about the audio being a little tracer-like. But actually, on psychedelics, you could have tracer-like audio, too. So imagine you hear the sound of a bird, you're outside in nature and you hear a bird make a chirp. Um, well, actually, you know, if you have tracer effects across different sense modalities, maybe you'll hear multiple copies of that bird chirp um, fading out over time and they'll each be spaced, you know, maybe 100 milliseconds apart. I'm just coming up with an example. Um, when in fact, the bird only made one chirp. So you might have an audio tracer where you get multiple chirps even though there's only one chirp that was made. So this tracer effect is definitely um, beyond just the visual field and probably reveals a bunch of clues about how all of our senses work and how our brain stitches together our conscious experience. Uh, Thank you. So there was something that I thought about right there at the end with, um, when you mentioned the audio thing, something that I've kind of wondered about that could be it could either um like this might like i feel like there could be more than one possible uh kind of tracer like experience that exists let's say um where like um like so i've wondered something i've wondered about like say psychedelics is that uh like there seems to be like this uh echo suppression in the brain where like when we hear audio, um, our brain tries to filter out the uh, echoed uh, parts of that sound and kind of like uh, binds it into one sound in a way. 
And um, like something I've wondered about psychedelics is if they might actually stop us from doing that, like uh, so that like you begin to hear all of the different echoes or kind of uh, like, um, like I've wondered if like, like say we're always in a room or always in certain sizes of rooms where we've kind of just constantly been exposed to uh, a certain kind of delayed echo sound that's with every sound that we hear in our lives, you know? And uh, like, like we go somewhere like maybe like novel where there's like a like a huge hall or something and then we notice the echo very profoundly but um but we don't really almost ever notice it if we're like in an office like there's probably more reasons than just uh just the habituation of it but also like uh, there's probably like a time frame which suppression stops happening or something like that but i do think that like it's possible that maybe psychedelics might um, make it so those things aren't suppressed from our attention anymore or something like that. Uh, and it would be interesting because like, like it's possible that some of the things are tracers that you hear and some of them are actually real echoes that you normally don't hear or something like that. Um, so that's kind of like tangential, but, but yeah, well, what do you think about that? Yeah, th I mean, that's pretty interesting. I think if I want to learn more about this specific thing, what I would be really interested in trying is placing a non-human you know, human ear <laughs> and brain in a room where you think there might be echoes, just natural echoes that we're filtering out, and you could put a microphone there. And I think what would be most interesting is seeing the natural echoes in a room, what is the amplitude that is picked up by the microphone. So this is an object that, you know, we should assume doesn't have any, you know, echo filtering techniques that weren't already put in there. Um, and you're just picking up the natural frequencies that hit the, the physical microphone. So from there, you can get an assessment of, okay, like, you know, the echoes are, you know, half as loud as the original sound or maybe a tenth as loud. And that would give you a better picture of if, your brain is filtering those out or if they're just not even strong enough to make it to your brain in the first place, those secondary echoes. Um, and then from there, like, you know, if they are strong enough, then you could probably assert, you know, that your brain is doing some of this echo filtering. And then on psychedelics, uh, perhaps this is being suppressed, the filtering. So, um, so, so one thing about doing these uh, podcast with a co-host. I haven't learned so much about it. I'll just put that out there. Uh, Isla, if you'd like to ask questions, you can try to do it. I'll also maybe kind of ask you if you have questions at some point, because I mm -hmm. can't figure out another way to do this yet. And it's kind of like, it's kind of weird when there's like, there's no visual cues and stuff. Um, <laughs> so uh, how about, uh, do you have a question that you could say next? Uh, yeah, it's not super related to um, what you were just talking about, though. That's really interesting. Um, and I'm curious about whether... Are, are you, like, sort of speculating about the effect of filtering out echoes, or have you seen literature about that? So I, I, didn't, I didn't... At first, I didn't know that that was a thing, but I did speculate it. But then I actually got a class with a teacher that studied that, and um, mm. I can't remember what it, there was like a more specific name 
for this. It might have been like echo. It might just be something simple like echo suppression, but um, they were doing that's, like that's super interesting. Yeah, I think they were doing experiments about like what time span it had to be or something like that. Um, yeah, I can't remember exactly though. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Well, I have so with this tool, it the idea is that it would be used like ideally it would be used acutely. So part of like grabbing data from the experience itself rather than sort of reflecting on the experience, um, like ideally you would be able to collect the perceptual effects uh, while the drug is active, right? Yep. Yeah, and so have you like, I, I know we talked about this during psychedelics a little bit, but have you thought more about how to correct for the fact that people are going to be having this visual experience and then if you uh, present to them this tool where they're sort of trying to match um, the right hand side of the screen with the left hand side of the screen they're already going to be getting uh, field so um, in order to quantify that you might have to do some sort of complicated correction or like present the negative like the negative version of the visual stimulus you know what i mean yeah yeah so yeah that's definitely correct that um right now in the current form there could be like a compounding effect of computer generated tracers plus tracers generated from your visual field um so we do have some solutions for how to fix this um right now we <laughs> are trying to file some patents actually to come up with methods that are like really effective at getting the parameters out. Um, but we think it could be done. Okay, cool. Yeah. Have you, in that realm sort of, do you, so say somebody is experiencing a tracer effect and um, they're they're modifying all these parameters to try to replicate that effect uh, on the screen. Do you, based on like people's experience with the tool, um, using it while they're having the acute effects of the drug, does it seem like the the like there is a compounding effect so that the the parameters they're modifying add on to the experience, or is it more like uh, washed out by the experience itself, and so they can find the place where it seems to be equivalent yeah have you talked, so, yeah like have you talked to somebody about their experience with this yeah so we've talked to some people have used it and they say that it works <laughs> it works well of course it's not perfect and they say you know things that they wish would be different about it but um from the pilot data people say that they feel decent confidence about how they can replicate it and also that some parts of the effect, you could imagine the frequency aspect of it, um, there might be some natural sweet spots where like if you're at the right frequency when you're replicating, it might just overlap with itself right. on the computer generated and visual generated. So um, people can, right, even with not a perfect system, some of the parameters will still naturally find uh, like the right home. Or if it's not the right home, it would be like maybe an integer multiple too high or too low. So you can imagine if something was at 10 hertz, maybe someone thought they got it right and they really selected 20 hertz because it matched 
every other tracer they were seeing. Um, but uh, we think that like people have been able to say with reasonable confidence that um, they're getting the right the right parameters there. You could you could prompt people in that in that regard to like test out the whole range of um, of uh, frequency because uh, then I think that would reveal itself maybe. But cool, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's interesting. So I actually found this. I didn't really like obviously read it yet, but um, I found this interesting paper about visual influences on echo suppression. And it seems that if things happen in our visual experience that match up with those echoes, like if things seem to coincide with the echoes, then we don't suppress them or something like that, which is like really interesting. And it seems to be that um, uh, something like one to 10 milliseconds are usually suppressed or something like that. Um, yeah, that's kind of trippy, kind of interesting. Um, so that I the, noticed. Yeah, that like. Oh no. Uh, just that like the visual. Sorry. No, this is it's it's awkward and funny, interesting. Okay, so so uh, keep going though. <laughs> no, it's just like crazy that the well, like how early the the visual system influences auditory perception. Like it uh, interferes very early in the process that you like don't even hear. Uh, consciously something because of what's going on in the visual field yeah like when uh i don't know the thing i started to think about is like what if i don't know like what if you did hear the echoes would would you then also hear like the the echoes of the echoes you know like it, it would probably be like kind of weird like i don't know how far it goes before it gets too quiet you know like maybe there'll be like kind of like like you could probably like make some kind of I don't know auditory geometry of like the ripple patterns or something that you hear in a weird way I don't know but uh, mm. that's probably maybe nonsensical a little bit but <laughs> um, so another thing I wanted to bring up is that um, so so I have sort of some ideas about what might underlie some of these effects um, but there's kind of I think there's certain problems with some of these ideas um, but I'm kind of curious like um, well okay so first I, I don't know I, I guess I should just ask and Andrew what do you think uh, is happening like what do you think uh, let's say tracers what what is that why is that even happening do you have any ideas on that yeah I have some ideas so I think you could think of uh, like any current frame of your brain or like your visual field so like I, I guess start by thinking of your entire experience as a movie and each moment is one slice of the movie um, well then it raises this question, okay, if, if you only get access to one slice, how is it possible that you perceive motion at all, right? Because in a movie, each frame is static. So if you only have access to one static frame, you know, one frame of your visual field, how can you perceive motion? Well, there's a chance that actually your brain is already making really small amounts of tracers all the time to help give you clues about motion. So, you know, if I move my arm across 
my visual field from the right to the left side. Um, there is a little bit of blurriness as I move my hand across. It's not, you know, perfect discrete hand at any single point. There's some blurriness, and chances are your brain is already including like a very small blurry amount of tracers in any frame, just to give you hints about um, how motion works. So we think that what's happening on psychedelics is that the feedback system that basically either incorporates old information from your visual field into the current frame. So imagine you have like the current frame, you might have like 50% opacity of the frame a second before, 25% opacity of the frame before that one, um, and they're all overlaid on top of each other in a single moment. You might imagine that this feedback system is a little uh, screwed up so that old frames get extra uh, yeah, get extra opacity or like extra uh, visualization through your rendering process of your brain. And that is what's happening here when you see these tracers. You know, your brain isn't discarding the old patterns away so easily. Uh, they're keeping it for the current frame. So that's one hypothesis. So, um, so yeah, that's actually kind of the one that I like. Um, uh, one of the projects that I was doing, it focused on this thing um, called summation, like uh, particularly, I guess, temporal summation, but it probably is spatial and temporal summation in the brain where basically you'll have like, um, let's say, uh, like with like spatial summation, it will be like two neurons feed into one and that, th that one third neuron um, will be activated if both of the other two are activated or something like that. And there's also, um, uh, like it's been a while since I did uh, this project, so it's a little bit fuzzy, but, but basically like I started to focus on like two different uh, glutamate receptors, which uh, have different timings. So like uh, the NMDA receptors are slow and they've been implicated in uh, summation. And so, um, but then there's also the AMPA receptor, which is much, much faster, like uh, uh, as much as like 10 or even much more faster. I think it could be even as much as 100 times faster, but I don't remember specifically right now. But, um, but what I ended up kind of thinking is that uh, like summation could be involved here where like so 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 there's I forgot to mention there's summation but there's also things like coincidence detection which uh, NMDA receptors are also involved in and I think that these things might not be that different where it might be like um, like say this NMDA receptor it, it basically activates more slowly and stays on or it activates the neuron more slowly and causes the neuron to have a longer um, action potential and um, so what might happen with something like coincidence detection is that uh, like if two events happen in a small enough window of time they are considered linked right so like um, 
Uh, but if it's like outside that window, they're considered like separate events. And uh, the idea with um, summation being involved here, it might be that like, um, well, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of botching this, but I promise you, if you like actually checked out the project, it's like nuanced and not as stupid as I'm sounding right now, because I'm, I'm kind of sleep deprived and it's been over a month since I've even looked at this stuff. But, um, but basically, I think that this kind of summation thing, it might be involved in kind of temporal processing and motion processing and stuff like this. And that when you, like, say you cut it off with like a, an MDA receptor antagonist, uh, uh, maybe it stops the uh, ability of kind of detecting that things are in motion. And instead, uh, we might perceive separate frames of the object and assume that they're kind of separate objects in a sense, like not consciously necessarily, you know, like we're not thinking that there's multiple people surrounding us or something like that. But um, yeah. it might kind of do that. And um, and it's so I the other thing is the people from uh, effect index or the subject of effect index, they kind of talk about uh, the the effect of strobe stroboscopic vision from like things like dissociative drugs, the NMDA receptor antagonists. And um, they talk about this stroboscopic effect as potentially being akinotopsia, which is the inability to perceive motion. So it's, it's all kind of really interesting. And with like psychedelics, I think that it might be something a little bit more complicated where, because um, when you showed me that the trails are associated with a stroboscopic trail effect, that was actually like, like it basically made me start questioning my hypotheses that this stuff is kind of involved in motion perception, but I don't, I don't think it totally cancels it out. And sorry, I'm kind of going on a little bit, but um, <laughs> and I hope it's making some sense because I'm a little bit yeah. like tired. But um, but basically, I think like psychedelics, they might be they see like from what I've looked into the the five HT two A receptor that everyone talks about being like their supposed main effect, um, that receptor is able to actually modulate NMDA receptors, but it doesn't do it in one direction necessarily. And it seems that the direction that it goes, like whether it boosts the effect of NMDA receptors or decreases them, uh, seems to depend on other receptors like 5-HD1A. Um, so I think, I don't know, I think it's possible that you can get like a lot of crazy effects where you're both experiencing maybe a lack of motion perception and uh, too much kind of like turning off and on or something like that, like flickering back and forth or something. I don't know. Yeah, I think you probably know more about receptors than I do. <laughs> and I think... Um, haven't looked at a receptor level explanation of this phenomenon. I'm just thinking of it more at the level of signal processing. But I think you could explain it with these receptors when you know how they activate or suppress. Um, and again, like the high level is, okay, you have some light hitting your retina. And along with that information, there's, you know, maybe leftover information in your brain of past things that you just saw in the short, you know, your short memory. And what you're seeing in your brain is some combination of those two things. And you could imagine like different dynamic or recursive feedback loops that combine the retinal information and leftover information from previous frames into the current one. Um, and definitely seems like receptors are modulating this process. 
So something else that could be related to, um, so I'm really curious about why, like trying to explain why it would be stroboscopic. And uh, one of the things I was thinking of is maybe, um, like so in audio stuff, there's uh, like you can have like say like a resonance and uh, like cancellation, wave cancellation. And so like if, if the, like say the, say that these kind of, uh, or like say that like tracers are kind of like visual echoes in a way, and like maybe they start like uh, interacting with each other, like they might uh, create like ripples kind of, you know, like in a pond or something like that, like where yeah there's like low points and high points and maybe, maybe that's why it's like stroboscoping or something like that. It could be like, um, I don't know, just going like on and off, you know, or something. I don't know. Like this is like super speculative and, uh, uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's if, if you have any comments, that's amazing. But if you don't, but don't, don't feel like, uh, <laughs> bad. Cause that's like so out there. <laughs> yeah. I think what we just hope to get with more data is much clearer picture of, so you highlighted stroboscoping. Um, there's also like a replay effect you might think of. So, a stroboscope leaves motionless copies in its wake. So if you move your hand across your field, there's still hands <laughs> you know, behind. And a replay effect might actually leave copies of the hand that follow in the same pattern of motion that the original hand is moving through. So instead of leaving behind static copies, you have like these five hands behind your main hand, each following. So I think hopefully with more data, we just learn do, do different drugs cause different effects for stroboscopic and replay? Are they consistent? Um, does it also depend on dose? So I think we just don't know. And so we need more data. And hopefully with that, you might also be able to make more sense of what's going on. Because I think, yeah, even still, we're like we're data limited. And I think getting a study off the ground is what we're trying to do with a more advanced version of the tool. So what about um, that, that the data point is actually another thing that I was kind of curious about. What do you think? So you mentioned that, uh, that there seems to be dose dependency to like the, the effects that are observed, like the kinds of tracers that are observed. Um, like uh, how confident are you from, I guess, the data that you have already? Do you think... Like, um, like, were you getting results that are, like, sporadic and, like, totally different, and they just average out to be, um, like, something specific, you know? Or or were there actually, like, a lot of people getting really close to each other and stuff like that? Yeah. I basically am going to pull the same boring answer and say we should collect more data yeah. <laughs> before <laughs> no. I say anything. But I think, you know, the main thing that we see and you know there is of course noise between different users but as you increase dosage the effect becomes stronger and that's you know something people just know from their own experience and they take a small amount of psychedelic you know let alone tracer effects they might just say oh yeah I didn't really have any visuals it was just such a low dose or you know I was on such a high dose that like it was all visuals for 20 minutes and I couldn't do anything so um, you know that already matches or data anecdotally from what I just described, but you're right, like all the stuff between different people, if everyone takes 100 micrograms of LSD, what is the variation in that population of the tracers that we get to see? So 
you know, and you could also imagine, right, people who take 100 micrograms of LSD and are participants on the web, they might be taking it from different batches and maybe someone's LSD is expired. And so there's all these other problems of noise being introduced into the data. And so I think we'll only get really good answers when we have just a really large observational study that has enough data points that we can move past all this introduction of noise at different points in the process. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it'd be really interesting if there was like some phone app or just like some really, like it's already pretty accessible on the internet, but uh, maybe if, I don't know, it just needs to go viral and then everyone needs to use it or something. <laughs> that would be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Are you are you familiar with Quantified Citizen? It's a like research platform. Yeah, we spoke to Ishmael, so I think um, that's definitely a possibility for doing a study there. We're definitely still at the stage of like re-implementing the new design, so that's where right. we're at now. Do you know? And oh, sorry. You, no worries. Um, I I'm curious to hear uh, about some of the implications of. The research that you could collect so if you do end up getting um as you hope to like the big data lots of uh lots of data to analyze given that you know everyone's going to be taking different compounds and different doses and um having sort of varied experiences but once you do get that big data um what kind of outcomes do you see and you go through this in your uh, video on youtube but like maybe if mm -hmm you could just touch on some of the like utility of this this study, which there's some really cool applications. Yeah, definitely. So one thing that's like pretty valuable from a like understanding neuroscience and the brain to phenomenology and consciousness is seeing if a lot of these things that we find might be robust for certain drugs, we could also see in brain data. So of course, you know, in a study like this, we're just gonna collect data about the tracers and people's drugs and dosages, but what if we find that, you know, 2CB or LSD has this really consistent frequency um, showing up in the tracer effect? You know, the next question is if someone does a study with LSD at the right dosage and they get these tracers, you know, in the visual cortex, are they seeing neurons firing at the same frequency? Or if not, you know, could we explain from neuroimaging data of the visual cortex why there are tracers being generated at this frequency? Um, from, you know, one of the signal processing lenses I gave before. Um, so I think that's like one huge utility is like matching, getting data about phenomenology so that we could learn more about actually how visual processing, auditory processing work. Um, and this will help us learn things even for just normal sober consciousness. Um, then I think there's a bunch more fun utility in the psychedelic space itself. So one is you can imagine with a bunch of data and you know maybe even some demographic data to learn about okay do different people at different weight or you know weight or age have different effects to the drugs too um, but what you can do is you can collect all this data and then in the future you can get a data point and based off of that data point you can tell someone oh you know what you're showing us is most similar to this drug at this dosage and this could be really valuable for people who take a drug that they don't know what the drug is and is giving them psychoactive effects. So, of course, um, from, from like a safety point of view, we don't recommend anyone take drugs that they don't know what it is, but unfortunately people do this. So you can imagine at music festivals or other places um, with enough data and someone entering a data point, we could just tell them, yeah, you're most likely on this at this dosage. Um, or if not, like this is what the effect is closest like, at least in the tracer uh, domain. And 
you might imagine, right, as we advance the field, besides collecting visual tracers, you could imagine collecting one or two other data points. And based on those, you could extrapolate even more accurately what someone someone's drug was that they took. Um, so that's one thing. But, you know, on the same front, there's this idea of just standardizing drug intensity. So right now we have blood alcohol content and breathalyzers for measuring how intoxicated people are from alcohol, there is no scale to measure how high you are from a psychedelic. Or, you know, most drugs don't have scales that you can actually use to assess someone's drug intensity. And we think this is really important because, um, one, just out in the field, uh, you know, people will be taking drugs and, like, <laughs> I think helping people understand what kind of experiences they're having or, you know, they could benchmark to other past experiences what it's like um also right if someone takes what they think is some dosage and it's much more intense this could give them an idea of like what that dosage was um but also for actual therapy use you can imagine that a bunch of therapeutic outcomes and clinical effects come only in certain dose ranges or like you know a therapy session works best at this dose range and you might find that actually okay if you give everyone the same amount of a drug whether it's psilocybin or lsd or something else you might find actually that people have different responses to psychedelics. And even though you give everyone the same amount, and you know, for our podcast, I keep referring to LSD and 100 micrograms, so I'll, I'll just stick to that. So let's say you, know, you give all your patients this, maybe there are some soft populations that respond really differently to LSD. And this actually came out, so MindMed had a study on certain metabolism differences in people and how that affects you know, their impact of psychedelics. Um, but you also just might imagine, regardless of um, genetics, maybe this is just uh, also, yeah, age, weight, um, ethnicity kind of thing. So if we want to give people like really great therapy and the doses are wrong, it could waste therapists' time and money. And this tool could help basically titrate the right dosage for psychedelic experiences. You know, if you, you're too low, we, we can find that out. And maybe if you know you take the drug that is prescribed and it actually is like a super intense effect, we could also find out from the tracer tool in a more precise way and maybe reduce or like calm down uh, the intensity. That's super interesting, yeah. Especially, um, I don't know, I'm interested to see how like clinical application of psychedelic therapy goes and whether it becomes sort of like a every six months type of model where you would end up being able to like optimize the dose um, based on the previous experiences. Um, I'm interested in uh, something you mentioned. So, like, yeah, that right now this is one sort of effect that you're looking into, but how did you arrive at this specific effect, and were there others that you considered, or, like, was this the one that kind of inspired this project, and um, also, like, do you see in the future uh, specific perceptual effects that you're interested in quantifying? Yeah, so I think the ethos we take is that, you know, psychedelic researchers should target just the most salient effects that we already know exist from the community, from the replication community, and test these things. And, and so, you know, Basically, you could consider, like, we're not going into psychedelic science with zero information about it. We already have a lot of, you know, reports from verbal, anecdotal, perceptual, and now science should just 
go for the lowest hanging fruit, the things that are going to be easiest to check. So for us, we just realized, oh yeah, this tracer thing, really common. Um, we know it exists. People have mentioned this to us and, you know, we've seen replications about it. Let's study this first. It seems like it's so common that we're going to be able to do good science here. Um, I think from there, you could then just ask the question. <laughs> I mean, I would recommend this for scientists, which is just go on the subjective effect index, which um, was referred to earlier, and look at you know all the common psychedelic effects, and then try to design experiments or tools that could measure and target the most common and salient effects. Right. I ha I'm interested in like uh, pattern completion and identi identification, and I, I think there are studies. Um, or like about motion perception, like I think there's a study with like dots moving on a screen and people on psychedelics were more able to recognize when the dots coincided in their motion in a specific direction than control participants or something like that. I don't know, uh, but that seems like a cool, um, cool one to explore. Uh, definitely one that seems sort of salient based on the subjective experience. I'm so curious to see that. If that study is real, oh my gosh, that sounds so interesting. I think it is. Let me look into it. I'll try to find it. Thank you. Awesome. Um, have you, do you know about the, there's like something called a, the uh, fusion flicker threshold. It's basically, um, so there's this idea of, well, I, I don't know, phenomenon, I don't know what to call it, but a thing where basically there's like a certain frequency at which um, perceptions are kind of fused so like um, well basically I think it's kind of that you perceive it as motion instead of um, well I don't know again I'm like sleep deprived this might be wrong again which is really annoying because I've written like all this long stuff about this actually so but um but do you know about flicker fusion threshold yeah and uh i could try explaining and if it's you know you could correct anything i say but i think roughly right it's like there is a certain frequency of flashing some stimulus so we could just choose visual again so you could flash a light and eventually you could flash it so fast that i can't tell it's flashing and this is actually the case right with any AC light bulbs, anything that uses alternating current, the light is actually flashing really, really fast. Um, I don't actually know what the <laughs> what the AC frequency is on light bulbs in you know house, but um, there's a case where this light is flashing so high, it's it's above our frequency threshold, so we can't see it flashing. But if you you know you flash a light bulb to me, on and off, where it turns on, it takes one second, and then it turns off, it takes another second. Clearly, it's moving so slow that I could tell it's flashing. So that's a, a flicker fusion frequency, I think. Yes, exactly. Um, I think that that would be kind of interesting to tie into all of this stuff, like the tracer thing, because I feel like I feel like they're kind of connected potentially. Where um, maybe the thing that uh, I don't know, like it's kind of hard for me to explain the connection right now, but. I think that, uh, like, I well, okay, so, like, I've kind of looked into, like, which drugs affect uh, fusion, the fusion threshold, and uh, I think it was that cannabis increases the threshold, but I think 
I, I couldn't really find good information on psychedelics though, sadly, but there were other things like stimulants and um, sedatives and different things like that. And, um, but, uh, and there, there's also things that are not drugs that are associated with altered flicker fusion thresholds. And um, so like if it, with cannabis, I think it's that you can basically, you'll be able to perceive a faster flashing light on cannabis than if you weren't on it, at least according to some study that uh, I don't know how great it was, but um, but it's kind of interesting. Like uh, like one of the the very first time I did cannabis, I basically did the dumbest thing ever and took three dabs, <laughs> and um, and it was absurd. And I ended up like seeing like flickering, and I didn't know if it was making my vision like strobe basically or if I was seeing the lights in the house like flickering and um but I've noticed other times as well where I can see like certain light bulbs flickering and so I actually like looked into it and I think it I think there's this one study that talks about uh like humans can see as much as 2000 hertz and I think there's even some that say more than that but um and it's specifically the uh, humans are better at seeing stuff like that when they dart their eyes around. So, like, if you hold your eyes still, it doesn't work as much. But if you dart your eyes, uh, it seems like potentially the flicker fusion threshold just, like, goes way high. And you're able to see, like, flickering. And you can try this with, like, a, if you look at, like, those digital clocks, um, they look pretty solid. But if you, like, dart your eyes and, like, move it around, you'll actually see, like... Uh, kind of a, a strobing effect like you'll see it kind of separated uh, you'll see like copies of it or something like that in a sense kind of like the tracer effect in a way but maybe not exactly the same but uh, I don't know that's something I think is kind of interesting yeah that's super interesting I think one other thing to add here, if it's okay, can I go on a tangent for a sec? Yeah, go on as many tangents as you want. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, there is actually another use of the flicker fusion frequency that I thought was super interesting. Um, there's a group called Rethink Priorities in the effective altruism community that explores, um, they do a bunch of stuff with animal welfare and animal consciousness, but they were using, um, they're trying to figure out, you know, first, what kinds of organisms are conscious, but also, um, given some organism, does their moral weight, their moral significance change depending on certain parameters? And one of those was flicker fusion, because you could imagine if like, you have a really high flicker fusion threshold, maybe your actual experience has more frames per second. You know, in one second of physical time, you might have like 20 frames of subjective time. Or for a different animal, maybe it's 80 frames of subjective time. So they were using flicker fusion threshold to ask the question of, you know, should some animals, should we think of them actually having more moral significance per unit time compared to another animal? And this is just one proxy, of course. Maybe there's a bunch of other things. My take would be, like, can they feel pleasure and pain and how, to what extent and what intensity? That, that seems really important. But I thought flicker fusion was an interesting one to include, too, here. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, it's... It seems like so. There's a whole stream of processing from, like, uh, the input of vis visual and perceptual information, 
and then to the emotional and behavioral response. So it would be interesting to figure out where in that process the subjective experience begins and like so yeah if the flicker rate is greater but for example like the um endocrine like hormonal response is not uh faster or like perceived at a greater frequency of (laughs) perception of some sort then like would it still be subjectively more uh painful or stressful or like whatever yeah you're trying to yeah. Yeah, that's... yeah, these are like such interesting questions. I'm so glad people are exploring them. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really, I don't know. I didn't actually know that they were doing that. I have heard of something about uh, like flies. I think they've said they have like a really high kind of like frame rate basically or um, kind of a, like, or that they experience like four times as much or like four times uh i don't don't even know like like slow motion perception basically or something um have you heard about that i don't think so i could try to find something about it but there's something about it but it kind of makes sense like i feel like like the rate of uh perception that the different things experience i think it's based on how necessary it is. Like, I actually think that's the case for humans too, but I think that like depending on what you do in your uh, life, like like you don't need to be extra aware for no reason. Then you're just like burning off things for nothing maybe potentially. So like, like probably people that yeah. are doing like sports or something or something like extremely temporally acute, they're probably kind of yeah. training themselves to th- see faster and stuff like that. <laughs> I just pulled up the piece from Rethink Priorities, and it's so interesting because the animals, like, from very different classes of animals, have flicker fusion frequencies that aren't related. So you have, like, a human, they're saying is about 60, and then a rhesus monkey is 95 at the top, and a shrimp is 31 at the bottom of this list. But also close to the bottom is another mammal, a seal or a rat. And at the very top of this list is a fruit fly. <laughs> so there really? seems like no rhyme or reason to why different yeah, classes or phylums of animals have certain flicker fusion frequencies, which is fascinating. Yeah, I'm not super convinced that <laughs> that like perceptual frame rate could be a, like based on especially what you just said, uh, that list could be a good proxy for like uh, um, awareness and uh, like moral that can be used as a proxy for moral weight but I would be interested yeah. to see how, how this organization is um, justifying that yeah I don't think they're using it as like the main or only uh, proxy it as, it's just yeah. like this is probably a variable that in the long run will get incorporated into moral weight. There is research that is in humans that was trying to associate flicker fusion with intelligence. And I feel like that might have been where they were coming at, I guess. I I don't know. You actually might have said intelligence, but I might have missed that part. Or I don't know if you said awareness only, but but I don't know. I'm like kind of sketched out about that. And (laughs) I don't know. I also think in terms of like 
animal intelligence, I think, like, I have, like, some really weird ideas that I won't even get into on this, but, um, like, I don't even necessarily think that humans' special ability is intelligence, really. I think it's more communication, and I think we are really intelligent, but I'm not exactly sure if I would think that humans are, like, the even the most intelligent species. I think we just accomplish the most, and I think that's hugely because we can write things down and constantly talk and basically, like, give each other all the answers to everything that we're supposed to do in our lives, basically, you know? And I think the more information that we kind of accumulate, I think it's, like, just having the information is what matters, but I don't think that we're necessarily... Like, if we were to cut off the communication part of it, and just compare intelligence to another species that doesn't communicate, that is also really intelligent. I actually am suspicious that humans might not be the best, like, um, or even that it's possible that they've traded off certain elements of kind of like raw cognition uh, in order to be better suited for kind of like, kind of uh, social synchronizing and different things like that. Um, but I also think intelligence is kind of arbitrary in terms of morality. Like, I think the, the relevance, it would ha at least in my own way of thinking, is that, uh, like, the relevance it would be to morality would be that more intelligence means you can uh, help more other people reduce their suffering because you can figure out how to not do it, but... But I don't think that someone who is more intelligent or anything, any kind of like creature, I guess, that is more intelligent has any necessarily like, like that they don't matter more or that that has any effect on like valence or anything. Or even there's something that like Richard Dawkins said that, uh, that probably uh, the fact that humans learn more or if we are smarter, which I think is debatable still, which maybe that sounds insane, but, um, but, uh, he said that that probably means that humans have better, like, coping skills and ways to react to suffering, like, say, like, say we go to the dentist and it hurts, we can know that we're safe there, or we can find, like, if we are hurting, we can, like, do something like meditation or something like that, you know, but then, like, an animal, they might just, like, be just, just total panic, like, the whole time or something like that, you know, or like, or even, I don't know, there's like a lot of way, ways that I can go and, but I don't know, yeah, it's like a long tangent there. <laughs> so uh, what if we switch on to, um, I don't know, what, what do you guys think? Feel free to even just bring up topics that are of your interest and whatever. <laughs> hmm. One thing, this is like loosely related to uh, the tracer effect sort of on a more um, uh, a more abstract level. Listening to trip reports from psilocybin studies, a lot of people, well, there was an interesting idea that was brought up in one that I was listening to where uh, this woman was like basically having an experience and feeling about the importance of being able to relay that experience to people back in the real world and uh, sort of coming to the realization that if you are unable to communicate your ideas 
from these uh, altered states, then it is often uh, seen as more like, like you could be seen as sort of uh, psychotic or like, uh, yeah, if you're not able to communicate, then it's like a negative thing. But then if you are able to communicate, then it's a signal of sort of like brilliance and you can really share amazing ideas but it's just a matter of whether or not you can communicate it sort of the line between those two things and this like collecting the subjective experience and finding a way to quantify it and bring it back um to normal consciousness is interesting and like how how uh whether we will develop more language or more tools to relay all these different kinds of experiences that hold a lot of really potentially important information. Um, I don't know, Andrew, do you have any like interest in the more sort of abstract subjective side of the acute experience and trying to get quantitative information about those? Yeah. I mean, this is the dream (laughs) and just in the long run, like we can do this better and better. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting that you shared this. I can empathize. I'm sure many people can. And I think it's probably just a big part of why for a long time psychedelic experiences and still today are just really hard to communicate is we just don't have the language yet to figure out how to share these things. I just thought of, imagine, um, you know, like cave people back in the day and they're just figuring out language and they have a couple words and one of them you know they just they figure out they they can do some communication and one of them sees something that is like really important to communicate but they just don't know how to say it and it could be something so simple as like you know i i saw jane hit bill with a bat you know like a club (laughs) and um they just don't have the words to share that so yeah i definitely feel that's where we're at and clearly it's like of the same value like figuring out how to get a language here or even more value of what we can unlock once we can talk about these well figure out how to get people to the states that are worthwhile and you know maybe even engineer new states that no one has seen before because we understand how this you know consciousness language works and by language I really mean like the fabric of consciousness itself understanding how that works and then you can combine it and mix it and do whatever you want with it yeah, when you said the cavemen, I my mind went to uh, cavemen eating mushrooms, which they very well could have, and then <laughs> trying to communicate what they experienced, and like obviously not being able to at all. And the only way to communicate it is to hand a handful of mushrooms to your fellow caveman, yeah. <laughs> and and then just I just imagine them going like, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> like dude, you gotta try this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I had something else. What was it? Uh, okay, give me a minute. Someone can take over. <laughs> well, I also, I think just on that topic, there's something about empathy, too, for just we're in this time where more and more people are going to have access to psychedelic experiences. And without the words to describe them, we need to just be super gentle and helpful for people who don't have the words to articulate anything at all. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, that's, I think also being a a part of being 
very inclusive to people of all backgrounds and uh, because psychedelics are sort of more predominant potentially among certain demographics right now in the United States that like really committing to making the language accessible and not being like in clinical context potentially like not being super radical in the language at first and getting a good sense of the patient and um, what language they have and meeting them where they are rather than uh, expecting them to come with this like full language that we have developed in like psychedelic communities um, is going to be really important for people to feel welcome and safe. Um, yeah, I remembered what I was going to sort of ask about. So this is also sort of off topic. So if anyone else has anything on what we were just talking about, jump in. But um, could you let me know if this is not correct, but I understand sort of that there might be a relationship between looking at the like tracer frequency in that like a higher frequency might be sort of unpleasant, whereas like a lower frequency or something is more pleasant or something about like harmonic frequencies uh, producing a more positive emotional state. And then um, that like the, the perceptual effect on tracer frequency might be reflecting sort of a brain uh, wave frequency that may also be underlying sort of emotional valence and um, that this might relate to, I think Quilia has a, a pretty developed theory of like the symmetry theory of valence. <laughs> I'm getting that right. Could, are those yeah. related? Uh, yes, definitely. So I could talk for a second here. Um, yeah, we think like valence, which is you know, fancy word from psychology and neuroscience just means how good or bad an experience feels. So some people just use the words pleasure and pain. That's the axis of valence. Um, it's still an open question whether valence is going to end up on a single number line or whether it's like this multidimensional thing. But one thing is that we think valence is a global property of any moment of experience. So right now I'm here on this podcast and like in this moment I have some positive valence or negative valence right now it's positive and we think that valence being this global property of a conscious experience means that all the different parts of your conscious experience so your visual qualia your sound auditory qualia tactile sensations uh you know there's going to be more things besides those but all of these things together somehow um contribute to valence this like global holistic property and in particular what you're touching on isla is that we think that valence, how good an experience feels, is going to happen, like positive valence is going to happen when experiences are smooth and symmetrical and consonant. And, you know, just to give people an example of this, these kinds of things, like think of the difference between um, like random noises at different frequencies with no pattern whatsoever, like that could be kind of annoying, versus like a smooth, consonant sound of a choir you know choir could be really really pleasant and beautiful and most people don't don't find it the opposite feeling of oh my god this choir is like the worst sound i've ever heard you know maybe people are out of tune but that would be the reason <laughs> a good choir would sound good and so we think actually this is true for all the sense modalities and also all sense modalities together that you know when things are more symmetrical you're going to feel better because that is what feeling good literally is it is symmetry and consonants and all of these different sense modalities 
And so on tracer effects, what we might find is that people who are in really, really good states, um, like really high positive valence, and maybe this could happen on lots of classical psychedelics, especially what I've heard on 5-MeO-DMT. I've never taken that, but people report it's really high valence. Um, and MDMA, too, is very like consistently positive valence for many people. Um, what you would ex expect is that visually, if we're measuring the visual system, we would see smooth consonant tracers. And right now, you know, our tracer effect software doesn't allow people to even make dissonant tracers where, you know, the frequency between strobes or replays changes from one after image to the next. But of course, we can just rely on verbal reports, maybe without replicating it. Someone would look at the ball bouncing and actually have some like dissonant or jagged or uneven tracer effect. And if they are seeing that, we expect them also, they'd probably have negative valence. So those would go hand in hand. Um, I think, yeah, that's like a good overview. I mean, maybe that we could talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, but the high level is um, when people feel good, if you actually inspect in that moment of experience, you'll find symmetry in the consciousness itself. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm actually a little bit skeptical of that idea, but I actually also really like it. Um, hmm, but I don't know what to really say about it. I think it sounds like mind blowing, though. <laughs> so, um, I think it's also an idea that uh, we just ask people to verify in, um, in like the most. I think it's easiest to verify in like the most pleasurable states, and chances are, <laughs> like the most pleasurable states don't occur very often when you're sober. Maybe if you're like super experienced meditator, you'll have them. But um, certain drugs or altered states that are really high valence. If you inspect different sense modalities, um, we'll just ask, you know, are, do you find symmetries in your sense modalities? And from, from the evidence we've gathered, the answer is yes. And we just ask people, you know, why don't you try this too? So that's, I think, sometimes why this theory doesn't make a lot of sense at the sober, like everyday level. It's hard to see what does it mean even for like there to be more symmetry in my sense modalities. But in the really intense states, then this becomes more apparent. I think, like, my first thought on it that makes me wonder, I guess, is that, um, like, say with music, with music there are ways to make a song very extremely symmetrical, but I think that it there's a point where, well, like, like, one thing that happens is that you can use, like, say rhythmic asymmetry and that actually is often more desirable than if it was very symmetrical like if it, it was like imagine if it was like ex just like the most crazy amount of repetition ever i feel like that would be very symmetrical like if it was just just like the same sound like looping i feel like people might go crazy over that though <laughs> you know <laughs> and, um, yeah like, there could be an element of novelty, maybe, 
where like yeah this is a great point uh go ahead oh i was just gonna say i think what you're touching on and we totally agree is that there is a big difference between symmetry and a stimuli and symmetry and consciousness itself Hmm. so um the symmetry theory of valence is about symmetry and consciousness and you might imagine that you take some symmetrical stimuli like a song that just has one note repeating at an equal space it's the most boring song ever and of course this doesn't make you feel the best um but that's because like your entire i would say like bubble of consciousness or you know field of consciousness this thing doesn't have really high symmetry um and it's like kind of subtle but um there's the answer by like you know you could have symmetrical stimuli that don't make you feel good um but loosely um there is a some correlation at the stimuli level for some amount of time and then you're right the novelty boredom mechanism kicks in yeah i could i could see it maybe being like that and uh maybe as adults uh we've been exposed to so much repetition that there's like a high level or a high need for some sort of um novelty that ends up kind of uh like you can kind of see this actually in certain music genres where i think like the insiders of the genre will be really hyped up about some kind of novel meme that's circulating because uh, usually if you like look at music it's it's kind of very mimetic where like like all the artists will keep using the same sorts of uh, things like especially electronic music they'll take like specific build-up noises and many songs will use that like someone will create it at first and it'll be like a kind of like an offshoot of what the last version of something was and they'll keep kind of like deviating from that over and over and kind of just evolving and uh but i think to the outsiders some of the sounds actually aren't that great but if you are a person listening to the genre just the fact that it's shocking and unexpected it's kind of uh it adds like this kind of spice to the song i guess and uh maybe maybe like in in our i guess in our adult lives it might be that like like they were all immersed into this reality so constantly that we've been kind of uh that we start to seek kind of novelty things much much more Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. I think too, you know, this is also just super consistent. It's like separating some physical stimuli that two people could listen to. It's the same stimuli and yet when it goes through all the wiring in their brain, it ends up both being felt differently and maybe even rendered differently. There's like so many layers to this too because like some people like if some people like songs based on lyrics and that's not based on how it necessarily sounds you know like that becomes like a whole separate category of thing it becomes about the meaning of the language and all sorts of other things and there's like memories associated to different sounds and contexts and just like all these crazy things that could be at play so real quick i actually got um so isla has to actually leave at 
basically right now it seems <laughs> um so uh so we could yeah you guys if you want to stay on i could just pop off or okay what do um, we want to do this could also be a natural close super fun today so <laughs> yeah i think that sounds good cool yeah it was so great to talk to you andrew i love your project um, and also a bunch of other stuff going on at the Institute. It's really exciting. And I, like, uh, since the beginning of getting interested in psychedelics, I've been kind of looked up to the research that you guys do. Thanks yeah. so much. Yeah. Um, it's also been great, like, talking with you today, both of you. And also, um, we talked a bunch to you before during psychedelics. Yeah, this was an interesting chat, and I like what you guys are doing, and basically all the same things that were said right there. Um, cool. So, yeah, uh, thank you both for coming on. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. I will. I do want to say, even though I shouldn't say, like, it's probably, I should just pretend like it didn't happen, but I was definitely kind of off today to be honest so <laughs> I just want to put that out there because I feel like there were so many moments where it was kind of weird maybe I don't know maybe I'm weird in particular I mean <laughs> but um no I think I think it was it was interesting and you you brought up a lot of really cool points I don't think nothing weird yeah. about it I thought it was super fun and if I'm also weird I think everyone's a little bit weird so fantastic <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I guess uh, that concludes it. Uh, thank you all for watching, and um, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Everyone should leave right now, so goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>